Poetry night. Gather cigar boxes and fill Four's a scary number. Poetry night rings through. Welcome to the mic. Jed Myers, our first feature. Oh, thank you, thank you. Hello, hello. Um, I know I can do this. Ah, how about that? How responsive. Hello, okay. And then I can do that. Yeah, that seems about right. Excuse me. Uh, well, um, thank you, Dobby, and thank you to this county and to this library and to all of you for this gathering. I'm going to read a little bit from a couple collections and then read some newer stuff because it'll be more fun for sure for me and maybe good for you too. This is a, a chapbook, uh, Finishing Line Press, called The Nameless. And as the title suggests, it's kind of an exercise in anonymous empathy, like imagining oneself into the experience or inner life of another that you don't know. So I'll read one poem from this little collection that kind of is in, in that vein. I think airports are great places for anonymous empathy. This is called Still in His Chest. A young warrior wanders the airport in his fresh laundered chaos cloth colored sage eucalyptus tumbleweed. Guess he's had to murder a fair lot of boys his own age. No Goliath, but terrified men who stumble and bleed. Still he's beefed up on belief, hair short as astroturf, eyelids like fast moth wings, doesn't know what he'll need for relief back here. Might be weed, oxycontin, beer, white froth of speed in a spoon. He's just bought a little golden bear for his kid. Holding it seems to quiver his mouth. He grits his teeth, temples taut as tripwire. Who knows what he did over there? Has his soul flown south? I bet it's still in his chest in a knot. Thank you. And uh, I'd like to read three poems from this uh, book-length collection. It, uh, it received the uh, Sacramento Poetry Center Press Book Award for 2013, and I was very happy about that, as you might imagine. Yeah. Hello. Okay. So this is a book that chronicles um, my father's dying of a glioblastoma. And uh, it's set in a family con context, kind of a multi-generational family context of, you know, how we all related to it and what the history of his life was. And, and uh, kind of, you know, going through 
a death, going through the death of my father, trying to kind of track it and write it. So it's divided into two sections, until and since. So at the beginning of the book is a poem called Cruising Home. I'm lying right on the bed beside him. He keeps catching his breath from the trek up out of the kitchen. We're talking memory drifts. Time that rented sunfish capsized in the river. Summer evenings playing catch before dinner. The night his father died. This winter day bright outside. From here behind the white curtains no one opens. A soft haze of the lost possibilities. He couldn't say if it's October or March. It's neither. But this, his last February, is itself a river of what we together happen to remember. He clears his throat. Windpipe boggy already since he's reclined. He tells me in that gravelly stutter his feelings have gotten too strong. Oh, he knows they've been there inside his chest all along since he was the young man he was, cruising home from work in the Buick, becoming and becoming my father. Now it's harder. Up through the neck and against his face from behind, pressing out through the eyes, contorting his lips, he gurgles, sputters, I haven't done enough for you yet. And fueled by a few gasps, just as when they lowered his father, he can't help it, he cries. Then it's over. He continues to forget. Thank you. I'll read w one more from the, uh, the since half of the book. Sometime after his passing. It's called, My Body Decides. I knew his body boxed in oak to be buried in the Jewish cemetery by Darby Creek. That day we gathered, I laid my eyes upon that casket ready on its metal rack and heavy walked away. The ache of it stayed in my thighs, a weight greater than gravity. Now, later, come the sighs out of my chest. My body decides he's in the sky, and the weightless part of me tries to rise, to reach the part of him that didn't die. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to just read a few more recent poems. I think it was, was it Dobby that mentioned confession? Said this is a confession. Yeah. So this poem is, I think you could call it in a way confessional. 
in, in a way. <clears throat> I was in Santa Monica recently, and this poem got written there. One of the beggars on Broadway, between the beach cliff and where we were staying on Fifth, stood under a thirsty tree in what I thought of as pajamas, barefoot and long silver hair and a simple knot on his head. My passing impressions peripheral, I wouldn't look at him. I heard the muffled jumping of several coins in the rumpled paper cup he held out and rattled every few seconds. It more or less dangled where a hand's fingertips caught the uncurling rim right in front of his chest, a foot or two to my right as we headed back from the pier and its Ferris wheel, its thrilling enough little roller coaster, and the the win a stuffed animal games with our new pink and white unicorn. Next time was lit with a bruised orange dusk. Sure enough, without looking directly, this was the same man. I quick scanned the arid canyon land of his face, its history of exposure. I wondered what might have set him to wander, or to cease wandering, to let go the thread through the maze of desire. What early paternal glare, penetrant stare-down with the most serious asshole in school, or shattering dose of Southeast Asian tropical rainforest warfare, for all I knew, might have sent him mapless out under the sun. The third time we strolled by his post, returning from lunch overlooking the surf, I thought I noticed an aura about him, something in how he leaned, the laxity in his wrist as he oscillated the cup. And though I tried not to catch his eyes, it seemed he was looking into a distance through us, through everything seen, and I daydreamed his days on acid, multiple hits at once, reaching again closer each time to joining the live, permeant gleam, refuge without boundary, preserve of origin, eschaton, and all between, and this brave pilgrim's progress at last and on unraveling even of that purpose. Later in bed, listening to the night through our small private balconies open sliding glass door, I heard the howl and sputter of hoarse repetitive curses of all the damned in the voice of another man, a drunk psychotic, I thought, and as if on the dark of the ceiling I painted him, Eyes chromed under the street lamps, lids hidden in beard. I'm sorry, lips hidden in beard. Torn green jacket he'd lie in the park in, backdrop of fits in the paddy wagon. Then I confessed. I'd invented them both, concocted these marginal men I would not have let myself know composed the detached, silent asker for alms, projected my own attributions out of a musty recess tucked in among my bones. Still, there was an aura about that loner under his flimsy tree. He held himself somehow apart from the clutching torrent his cup sampled. 
for all the dirt that blackened the long curled ends of his nails, the soot that made a persistent dusk of his hands, the grit in the drought-stricken riverbeds in the land round his eyes. He kept himself clean of the sludge we seekers over and over drowned in. If he'd thought at all about me, my dear company, or any who kept pressing past in the incessant act of keeping up with our own lives, he might have noted again the treacherous business we're in, selves moment by moment intact in our taut ships of skin. Thank you. I'm going to I'm going to skip this one on sudden intuition. So, you know, every now and then some of us feel that we better write something about what goes on at a distance. You know, the adage is write what you know. But then, you know, you know what's going on in the news. So that's something you know. What's going on at a distance in the world like some stuff you were reading to us. So, it's it's a risk, you know. It's a risk, it's an experiment, it's, uh, it's difficult. But <coughs> this is a poem called What Would Move Us. And I wrote it soon after the Boston Marathon bombing. But I kind of called it back up when this Tsarnaev kid went on trial recently. And it, it starts with a quote from the Tsarnaev's dad who said shortly after the bombing, the Americans are going to harm my second son the same way they did to my oldest son. How were they moved to pack the nails into those pressure cooker devices? Moved to make real their visions of others' tender flesh being shredded with utter suddenness? thrilled with the prospect of so many helpless in pools of their mingled blood. How were they moved, is the question. Is it too difficult, too soon? Are we not yet permitted to understand? Murderous young men, they must have been children once, squinting in sun, thirsty for purpose like all of us, wondering how to belong, caught in the shadows under the grown one's hands, under blame's dark imminence, born by history's shuffle into the shame-riddled house of the angry proud, their fathers and brothers offering hate's hard arms as the one hold for their helplessness. Our own souls might well have emerged wailing and wet out of wounds caught in that damned valley, valley that must run through every land, its shadows in all this world's cities and villages, where the hands of men will fly down fast against upturned faces, <clears throat> till it's learned we will name them. Them is the name at the end of the funnel of rage. No railing at mother, father, instructor, God. No wandering over the rules, nor comfort for those implosions of unspoken doubt. 
no inner questions to bring out in the rigid assembly of hate, no vessel for all the terrified tears that will have to go in, not out, turning to metal in shame's hot shadow and pressing to spill, while them, after all, we know has trained its telescopes on us. Anyone's flinch could get us all killed, or worse, humiliated. We too might be moved to gather the gadgets, wires, powder, little igniters, digital watches with settings for sending the signals even to press all those pointed steel tears into the pot with the volatile stuff and seal it shut like we're getting ready to boil the feast. What would move us? That is the question if there's a meaning to be found in the splatter and dust. Thank you. Here's a, a, a really recent poem which will surely convince you that I'm com totally psychotic. That's okay. It's called Mute Twin because you might realize that you are too, see, by listening carefully to this treatise. Mute Twin. <coughs> In the underworld, be it where we wander and dream, or in the rooms where decisions behind thoughts are made, or down in the lymph and marrow where the old tide rhythms give rise to murder and kindness, there must be an underself. I've seen mine of late, naked, bewildered man, cupping his genitals in vague shame as he stands amid the advocates, couriers, and committee representatives shaping what will go up on the screen of belief. He seems useless, a bit in the way, like a post with no beam as business goes on in the cackling caucus around him. And I've seen him back of my eye, crouched under the toothed gear shadow arches thrown by the underlight in the factory of ambition and need. Hands over his ears in the clatter, mouth open with nothing to say. And on the ivory beach at the red surf's edge, where he blinks at the endless death-birth synchrony, perplexed, or briefly Grasping his brevity, his dimness, his speckness, or mine, and he's my proxy. I must have caught sight of him earlier. Weren't we children together? I with the name, a face for the mirror and for all the parts to be played. I with a tongue and the words to dive off it and fly. I the one with ways to be known, and he the one not. Is it only now as our one pair of lenses cloud, as our two retinas loosen and thin islands of sloughed tissue drift between seer and scene, now 
that I slip into lapses of purpose, gaps of recall, minds wheels bogged in the brain's muddy ravines, and to see all this wakeful intelligence ever is afterthought. Is it only this late I can make out the inner mute twin, opinionless wanderer, skin to the stars no matter the cover, who all these years has not thrown one lever, has not wanted to steer, has remained flabbergasted by all desire, under self, other self, speechless witness dismissed, soon as I learned dandelions were weeds, you, the one I swore to silence while I joined in on boxing the world, you who accepted your exile under the haze of the surface deep in the cleft I never knew opened into its own uncensused metropolis where you've watched the clockwork of my intentions. I hear your murmurous thoughts like stream water now that these ringing ears go deaf. Thank you. Maybe I'll read one more. Does that sound about right? Well, you know, I read a lot of poems, and and I'm sad that I don't resonate with most of what I read. I really do resonate with some of what I read and hear, but some it's like, huh. You know, and 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 some of it's like you know it's 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 fascinatingly enigmatic, but I you're not like ringing my heart bell here, man. Come on, you know. So it moved me to write a poem. I'll I'll conclude for the evening with this. <clears throat> it's called "Once You See It." I want to be clear. Clear as the cold night air over snow, over shadows as clean-edged in the moonlight as that dark over its half the moon. Not to be gone, but to be as transparent as not there. Not to obscure with our skin and name opacities who under we are. Not to disappear, but to permit, to welcome with space as into a clearing after thicket, into a listening quiet, clear as the pair of yellow eyes under the pines' serrate silhouettes, though in the next moment not there though nothing after is said of it. Clear as a young eye's lens, clear as the glass-like humor behind, clear as the case for love, as a heart might find it from its place in the thoracic dark once or twice in a cloistered life. May it be so clear between us, clear through the day, as in a stream's pool 
the wind isn't bothering with. Sky and a shadowed face reflected in the water's blind faith, and under that mirror, through it, as distinct, once you see its fine lines, the live creature, the other you would have missed. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you, Jed Meyer. One more time for him, our first feature of the night. Um, but let's get you up onto the stage. Lynn Coffin, everybody. I'm, uh, I'm exhausted. <laughs> Whew. Yeah. How about something? Uh, that was really wonderful, Jed. It was really amazing. Uh, I'm going to sort of start the way I planned, although I'm a different person now. So um, uh, I, I wanted to go back over the evening, and uh, this is a, a called How God Speaks to Us, and it was uh, prompted by something uh, one of the first open mic readers read. God speaks to us in schoolmasterly claps, erasures of thunder, parabolas of memory. Chinese kites high over cliffs no one has fallen off of yet are first of all swooping birds that skim the sea of childhood. This is hard for me to read here. Skim the sea of childhood. I'm, I'm not going to be able to read from this book. It's too small. The print is but let me tell you about this, please. There's some really good poems in here. This is, uh, I'm really proud to be connected with this. Uh, one of my um, stints was as a teacher and a translator in Georgia, the country, not the state. And, uh, there's a, there's a series that they do there. It's called the Mosaic of World Poetry. And w this is Poetry Month. This whole book, it costs $2. Over there, it costs two lari, which is less than two dollars. And the idea is that you could buy a whole book of poetry that would go in your pocket for less than a cup of coffee. So, and the, the proceeds go to help poets in the Eastern Bloc, help them survive and so forth. So, I hope you'll, you know, fork over two bucks to, to do that. Okay. Well, maybe one, maybe one from that. No, let, let me try. Let me see how I go with the other ones. I think I'll be able to read some of the other ones. I do. Can you fix that? Okay. Okay, great. Let there be light, more light. Mayor Lick, that's how somebody died. I think that was Goethe. Okay, that's good. Well, maybe I'll be, okay, I'll be able to read that. <laughs> Thank you. That's wonderful. So let me try again how God speaks to us. If I can find it now, I gave up. Let's see. <laughs> this book is called Joseph Brodsky was Joseph Brodsky. And I was uh, Brodsky's teaching assistant uh, for two years. It was quite an experience. And I wrote a memoir that's in the back of this. It's an incredible experience to be here. So let me start again. How God speaks to us. God speaks to us in school masterly claps. Erasures of thunder, parabolas of memory. Chinese kites high over cliffs no one has fallen off of yet are first of all swooping birds that skim the sea of childhood. Then the all at once I'm 17 and old enough to ride the roller coaster sign. Abandon the past, all ye who want to do anything of significance. 
try the tunnel of love or wander through the Victorian haunted house of gabled intentions and dilapidated desires. At this appalling hour, craving is an unsteady invalid in a white nightgown, a young Betty Davis who descends the curving staircase with a candle that pins her indecisive shadow to the wall. We in the audience pray and then somehow know that when she falls, as fall we all must, she won't injure herself. She won't set anyone's house of cards on fire. We know she will establish herself as mistress of the brief collapse. We know she will survive another long stretch of cinematic moments. She will make it to a gentle decrescendo, not a Hollywood cheat, but an ending we can all embrace as far in the future and wildly happy. Thank you. Um, this is the other side of that. It's a Paradell. I don't know if you know about Paradell's. Billy Collins invented it as a, to show you how impossible form was. It's a very difficult. Every line has to be repeated once, and then all the words have to come in at the end. No more, no fewer. And uh, so I set it as to myself as a challenge to write. His paradels are completely nonsense at the end. He just gives up. But I th if you struggle with it and if you have a computer, you count the ands and buts and so forth. So this is probably the most difficult poem I've ever written. And it took a long, long time, but I'm proud of it now. And uh, it's called Paradell on Love. Once our hearts were open, we made love. We made love once our hearts were open. We turned and embraced in huge unmade spaces ruined by war. Unmade, we turned and embraced in huge spaces ruined by war. Once we turned and embraced open war in huge spaces we made, our hearts were ruined by unmade love. Have you vanished from the face of this life? You have vanished from the face of this life. Still, I miss belonging to you and longing to have love. Still, I miss belonging to you to have love and longing. I have vanished from this life to miss longing, and still you have the face of love belonging to you. Our old blind pain did not help us find a way to God. Our old pain did not help us find a way to blind God. God could not let us be true to one another. One God could not let us be true to another. Let us find another blind God to be true to. Our old one-way pain God did not, could not help us. Our old way of belonging to blind war turned our heart spaces to pain. We once embraced love and could have vanished from another God to find the one true face to help us. You were not open, God. You did not let be and have ruined us. And still, in this unmade life, made huge by longing, I miss love. Wow. Read something. It's a parallel, yeah, and at the end, every, every and, every but, every two in that works. It's, uh, it has to, every word has to be in at least three times or not at all. Three, six, nine. 
I, I tried to. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to read a couple pieces from The First Honeymoon. This is a collection of my fiction that just came out from Iron Twine Press. It's a new press in Seattle, and they've been really supportive and helpful. It was on Goodreads giveaway. They had 477 people vying for 15 free copies. I was ecstatic. Um, so I'm just going to read a short piece, which is kind of like a prose poem. That's how I can justify reading it tonight. And this is called A Fable for John. This story takes place many years ago in the mountainous region of a foreign country. A man had heard wonderful things about a certain woman and wrote her a letter. The man said in his letter he would like to come and visit the woman. The woman wrote back and suggested they get to know each other in letters first. Letters flew back and forth between the man and the woman. The woman wrote and told the man she hoped he would come to visit her. The man wrote back and said he would come to visit her soon. He asked the woman to come part of the way to meet him. The woman said she would. Letters flew back and forth between the man and the woman. The day came when they were to meet. The woman went to the meeting place, but the man wasn't there. She went home upset. The next letter from the man spoke about his difficulties on the road. The postmark on the letter was that of his hometown. Letters flew back and forth between the man and the woman. In his letters, the man said he loved the woman and would come to visit her soon. The letters were always postmarked from his hometown. The woman wrote a complaining letter. She told the man she loved him but was angry he had never really left home. The man said he was sorry. He quoted travel authorities about how difficult the road was. He asked in his letter if the woman still trusted him. The woman wrote and said no. The man wrote and said her distrust was the reason he had never started out. The woman wrote and said his not starting out was the reason she distrusted him. Letters flew back and forth between the man and the woman. The time between letters grew. Both of them stopped writing. The two never met. One more I think of as a prose poem. It's called Her Political Body, and it was published in the Rackham Graduate Studies newsletter at the University of Michigan in between scholarly articles. I thought it was hysterical. Uh, and it's called Her Political Body. On Valentine's Day, a woman is in a bar coming out of what is still called a ladies' room. She's wearing sneakers, a white blouse, and a tweed skirt. There was a cartoon in the stall. The cartoon showed a pantsuit looking at a closet full of naked women on hangers. The woman finds herself wishing she had been born in Canada. She imagines her mother laboring on a narrow bed. The bed springs creak, and the howling outside comes from wind and wolves. The woman sits at the bar. Under the glossy but scarred wooden counter, she parts her knees. She has what men call good legs, meaning when she parts her knees, her upper thighs go with them. The bartender asks what she wants to drink. She doesn't know. The usual, he asks, winking. She nods, though she's certain she's never been here before. She begins to speculate on the bartender's private life. She wonders what falling in love would be like after all this time. She imagines water pouring through a dam. She would like to imagine herself and a group of her friends kidnapping the bartender just for fun. But first she would have to imagine a group of friends. 
and this would take more time than she has. The woman wonders what her fingers will be doing in an hour's time. She shifts on her bar stool, unsticking her good legs from the red vinyl. She waits for the future to occur to her. So then this is a, I brought this because it's been hiding above my refrigerator in the cabinet. Um, it's a collection of poems by me and a Mongolian poet. His name is Babu Dorch. I met him at an international conference and he and I decided we both liked each other's poetry but we're the most unlike people you can imagine. We live on opposite sides of the world. He's male, I'm female. I was older, he was younger. He was tall, I'm short. Anyway, so... Um, we have this wonderful book, and it has, I don't know if any of you read Mongolian, you can really lap it up. <laughs> um, he's a great poet. I would like to sell some of these sometimes. Anyway, the poem I'm going to read of mine is called Eurydice's Motivations. And what I like about this poem is the beginning. The poets, as usual, got it wrong. What drew her upward wasn't hope or his bare fluted melodies or poetry. All strong emotions appalled her. She and her wants had become as simple as nostalgia. The need to change, the need to be the same, were fused in her breast to one new ambition. She longed to see if she could do an impossible thing and compress herself into her former shape to be less than myth demanded. She went with him, pale and patient, because she knew they would fail. She admired the dark magnanimity of his task. She'd been living underground, where tragedy was more sentimental than song. She lent herself to his journey nonetheless. She went willingly, in love and hopeless. So this is, uh, this is an erased poem. I, um, if you know Richard Rothenberg, um, sort of Rauschenberg became famous with uh, his mentor de Kooning. He took a drawing by de Kooning and he asked his mentor if he could erase some of it. Could he have the drawing and then erase it? And he erased about 70, 80% of this drawing and then he posted it in the gallery as an erased drawing by de Kooning by Richard Rauschenberg. And it was a tremendous scandal and shock to the New York art world when he did this. But if you see the two, I mean, we don't have the original drawing anymore, but it's completely unlike any de Kooning drawing. It's a completely different drawing. So I got in the habit of doing this with poetry. I did one for Billy Collins. I erased his poem, Memory. And this one I did with Ilya Kaminsky, who was a friend of mine at the time, and he has a prayer for writers and I wrote a prayer for authors, and I wrote my prayer for authors just as an erasure of his. And I sent it to him, and I asked him what he thought of it. He loved it. He thought it was great. I, at that time, belonged to a writing group, and the Poet Laureate of Massachusetts was on this writing group, and everybody said that they really liked the poem. It was wonderful. And then I revealed the secret that it was an erased poem by Ilya Kaminsky, and particularly this Poet Laureate got really angry and she said, when I use words, they're my words, and nobody else can use them. <laughs> anyway, and I said, well, Ilya was fine with it. Was she? Anyway, so this is, um, his prayer was very different than this poem. 
I walk the same blind surrender over and over. Can I live is a kind of petition. I run on edge through rooms holding the white furniture of prayer, a cross, a poem, a flag. I have to carry them without asking what dance this is. To sleep, I have to move in front of the mirror and praise a language in which music is a madness that will not disturb us. I want to wake up. I want to speak about the year I live, Lord, the darkest music of your actual streets, the mine of my days. But who will I speak for? Myself? This dead animal, my body? To speak what this is, I must leave the page empty and carry those I love out of the burning city on my burning back. few more this um something one of jed's poems uh, inspired me to read this uh i think the thing about the family and the, those very moving poems about your dad i love that sequence that whole sequence um so this is called milking the cow of my dreams so i'm 12 years old sick with a fever my dad went to sleep ages ago and my sister just gave up trying to take care of me and is probably awake in her room thinking about nothing except how she's going to get married tomorrow. I've fallen asleep in front of a TV that doesn't work and even asleep I'm feeling really stupid because I'm dreaming about a cow. She's so white it scares me, this cow. Not even my sister was ever so newly naked. She watches me come toward her as though the field of corn we're in is a country church all lit up except for one dark center aisle which I struggle down, me, the kid sister, purer than any bridegroom or his whispered yes. When I'm near enough, I reach out. I want to touch her, but her eyes grow vague and baleful, yesterday's overweight nurse on her lunch break. My left boot makes a mushy noise. Surprise! I'm ankle deep in an analogy so new it steams. Her tongue extrudes from her mouth like a thick pink slur of toothpaste from the tube our long ago mother taught us to roll tightly from the bottom like summer pants. Her black squared off nose is my teddies lost in the washing machine that broke right before mom's funeral. Her ears are damp kitchen towels that go psst when my sister puts them on my forehead, towels she won for spelling bureaucrat before Betsy Sands. I know what would happen if that tongue were pried. The tape my sister used to use to check her bust would get torn. She'd be spanked like in the old days and throw stones at me, spider-webbing my glasses, so I try the backdoor approach. That tail might lash and twitch like willow or birch, but it's the barn rope we swung on from loft to loft. It's never let us down. I grab hold and it's Eeyore's tail. I tug. It comes off, and with it, a balloon tied by a knotted string comes a bulging sack that thumps to the ground. I tip the slick thing open, tooth and nail. I pound the ground in red-handed joy, but the calf is dead. I shove it aside, fall to my knees, tuck in my chin and begin to butt. I nuzzle the warm white source of luck. Muzzle unmuzzled, I guzzle and suck. I wake up and it's morning. 
I'm feeling better and the fever's gone, but when it gets to the part I really don't want to, to get to and my sister starts walking toward me down the aisle, I still embarrass myself by crying. Because say what you like, three people is a family, but two people is just me and dad eating TV dinners and struggling for control of the remote. I have poems scattered here and there and don't know where they are. Um, let's go. Yeah, I know. Never happens. I wanted to read. Here it is. 38. This I did as a, when I was the Wordsworth poet one of the two times and I I was I don't know if you know how it works the city council invites one poet to read to them yeah and afterwards then you leave the room so the council members can do their thing and I had this Huck Finn experience I or maybe it's in Tom Sawyer I uh I left the room as I was supposed to after reading this poem and then the first speaker up was speaking against police brutality and he got to the microphone and he was crying and he was remembering the poem and he said, I really want to thank the poet. And he went off in this this sort of rambling tribute to a friend of his who died. And it was it was great because he didn't even... I, I was watching him on the TV outside the room. It was very powerful. Anyway, this came to me in a dream. It's sort of a found poem in a dream. And it's called The Reception Line. And, I, and I'll close with this. Last night I dreamt about Aunt Percy the spunky alcoholic I so loved for being who she was, funny, flawed. Leaving a bar one night when she was young, she rammed her car into a back road bridge abutment, then made her way in heels to the closest farm and called the police, complaining that someone had moved the bridge. <laughs> Aunt Percy Old was in my dreams reception line, she offered me apricots, cold and sweet. Aunt Percy, I said, you look wonderful, but thin, she said, which wasn't good. A question came up. Someone in the family needed immediate help. Don't worry, I said, which is almost always not good to say. I think dream talking with the dead may be a sign my own death's not far off. And there's not much time left for me to tell it like I think it is, which is the farthest honesty can take us while we breathe. And in the dream, I spoke to my father and was glad to see him looking well. The last real time was in a Scottsdale hospital. I went in as soon as the nurses were done, bathing, shaving, and feeding him. Garbled as he was, he got out my name and mumbled something about feet and cold. I rubbed his feet till he signaled me to stop, left a picture of my mother by his bed, and walked back to his nearby empty house, meaning to return after lunch. I was hardly in the door when the hospital called. In the dream... My father, too, was standing in the reception line. He looked happy and healthy. 
I said I was glad to see him. Then, speaking from some place deeper than memory, I said, You're my father, among other things. When I woke up, I knew my father's love was like a ship, and the ship wrecked and went down, and wood, wood floated to the shore of the island of my life, and I picked up all the timber I could and used it for fires when the nights were cold. Now I'm awake, a day older, aware it doesn't matter when we die, what we had, only what we did. And whether you know it or not, you may, like me, be so close to the edge, your feet are beginning to get cold. Your dead, too, may have formed a reception line, and so many in our family need immediate help. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. One more round of applause for both of our features. Thank you.